I was teaching at a, an English uh, theological college just last summer and you know, they're doing serious stuff and tonight, by the way, I'm going to do some serious stuff just to get going. Uh, but, oh, hang on, I like to walk and this is going to create a problem because <laughs> what have you done to me? <laughs> now, hang on. <clears throat> no, step back. Oh gosh, he said. Actually, he said something else, but oh gosh will be the translation. (laughs) There we go. Okay, all right. I just. I've got this anyway, so I don't know you meant to swing. (laughs) Oh, my baby left me. (laughs) Yeah, I should apologise. Ian Proven couldn't come, so they sent me instead. but I'm working on my accent. Anyway, I was saying I was at this, um, this college in England and they're doing serious work, but tonight you reminded me of their worship sessions. So they're on a five-day intensive at the University of Wolverhampton. You all know where that is, no. But um, it was just great to be able to do serious, thoughtful stuff about Jesus and have worship times that went like this, but probably you know, an hour every evening, 40 minutes every morning, and that just was the environment for the classroom. And it's the only college I've ever been to where when the faculty got together before the uh, intensive began, we had about an hour and a half where every professor had to explain how they created time in their classroom for the Holy Spirit to be present. Which is kind of great because if this is real, you should expect the Holy Spirit to turn up. So, of course, it has nothing to do with me, which is a really good thing because, you know, my blessing's pretty pathetic. But... This is the mercy of God. So I would encourage you, um, you should be open to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not just present while we're worshipping. We are, we are talking about the living God. Right? And when we talk about who He is, He's present for that. So some of you, I don't know if you're used to this or not, some of you might be feeling a bit ill. Right? Maybe you've got something you're struggling with. Don't be surprised if God turns up even in the middle of the talks and does something for you, okay? So keep an open heart. We don't manipulate him. We can't make that happen. But let's not exclude him by thinking, oh, worship is over, that's it. Okay? We're not going to do that. Is that okay? Good. So um, it's a real privilege to be here, I think, uh, with this thing. So where are we? Getting started. Well, um, first of all, thank you for coming. It's a long journey. Some of you are pretty tired, I guess. Some of you came from Antarctica, I believe. Is that right? It's a long swim. Um, but very good. <laughs> And I, t- I want to say too, actually, uh, I was tearing up a bit at the back because you have no idea how um, amazing it is to see you young people uh, who are just sharp, you're at uni, college, but you love the Lord and uh, you, know, you have no idea where he can take you. I grew up in a little apple orchard on a dirt road um, my dad was a worker in a factory. I'm the first person in my family to go beyond high school. But my parents loved the Lord. And they taught me to give him everything that was part of my life. And uh, I pinched myself about 10 years ago. I'm sitting in Beijing uh, with a group of other faculty from Regent College talking to the Vice Chancellor of Remnin University, which is in fact the premier Marxist university in China. As I'm sitting in that room, the Vice-Chancellor says, there's something we'd like you to do. We'd like you to come and teach our students how to read the Bible. Right? This is a little kid grew up in an apple orchard in a, from a poor family right? and just mum and dad taught me, give your life to Jesus and see what happens. Right? And uh, you know, I'm saying that as a serious academic right? and I don't think you need to pull those two things apart. So tonight, uh, what I'd like to get into, well, you already know we're going to talk about Jesus, which is great. Uh, this is the Polaroid. Uh, of a church in Istanbul. No, not of Jesus, of a church in Istanbul. Okay, note to self, don't tell that joke ever again. (laughs) So, um, what I want to do tonight is, uh, by way of introduction, there's going to be five talks overall. What's that? Oh, it's those things. (laughs) I'm thinking, these people have synchronised cell phones. What's going on here? (laughs) Um, So tonight we're going to actually lay, it's called getting started, we're going to lay some fairly serious groundwork, so I'm sorry about that, you've had a big day, 
it's going to get a bit worse. I'll try and make it, you know, entertaining, but it's solid stuff and important. Hope you'll see that. Tomorrow, uh, we're going to talk about a little bit more of who Jesus was, actually get into him. Is he kind of a Mr. Rogers? Is he uh, maybe a Christian Gandalf? I mean, who is Jesus? Uh, is he one of the guardians of the galaxy? Right? Is he... we, and, and I know those are ridiculous images, but actually we have some very odd ideas about who Jesus is, and that can get us into a bit of a mess ourselves if we're not really understanding who it is that we're trying to relate to. Now, of course, we're Christians and we believe that Jesus was, begin with G, God. Yeah, okay. We believe Jesus was God. Of course, then the question is, what kind of God do you think he is? And I've been around Christians for a long time and we have some really odd ideas about who God is, some of us. Some of our views of God are not that different from cranky old Zeus who throws thunderbolts at people, right? And I know that's true because some of you, whenever something goes wrong, you are sure God's after you with this thunderbolt, right? We have to deal with that. Who really is God? Jesus tells us who that is. Uh, And then the fourth talk is, what is God actually on about? If Jesus is God, what kind of God is he? And what does this God really care about? What's the most important thing to him? Is he one of the moral policemen of the universe? Is Jesus, our God, primarily on about goodness? And can I suggest that because some of you think that, it really screws up your Christian life and it's killing you. We've got good news. It's called the gospel. I'm going to talk about that on the fourth talk, all right? And, you know, just so you realize that this is not just airy-fairy theological stuff that has nothing to do with what you do in the real world. I'm an engineer, love aircraft, wanted to design them. I'm convinced there's a direct link between a Boeing 787 and the gospel. Now, you may not be convinced of that. I'm going to try and argue that case in our fifth and final talk. Is that all right? So tonight we've got about three hours. Why is he laughing? I'm serious. (laughs) Okay, so, uh, in some ways, this is really the story of my own journey. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. Is that okay? Good, so I I lift my hands up occasionally, and uh, I discovered that Anglicans can be Christians too. Oh, what a shock. (laughs) Uh, But you know, the the kind of Jesus I worship, uh, you probably don't know this guy, but he was a big fellow when I was young, you know, Casper. The friendly guy. So Jesus is a bit like, you know, Jesus the friendly Casper. There was, I mean, there was a real spiritual thing to it, but what in the world did it have to do with engineering? So my Jesus had a lot more to do with something like theology or philosophy. Now those are serious terms. And then when I went, went back to university for the second time to do art history, philosophy and sociology, I actually end up chucking in my Christian faith. Because I thought, if I can't prove this on the basis of philosophy, I can't believe it. And then I discovered that philosophy, wonderful Australian word, is a furphy. What's a furphy? (laughs) Sorry. (coughs) Who said that? Uh, No, no, no. Look, I'm, I'm into thinking carefully. I am. But actually, it's a category error. Back in the second century, there was a very smart guy called Celsus or Celsus. He was a pagan, 2nd century AD. The Christians are just beginning to get noticed and he gets very upset with the Christians and he says to them, if you expect us to believe this, you have to make sure that your beliefs can pass the tests of Greek philosophical proofs. We spent 500 years developing this stuff. It's the best thing since sliced manna. Well, not quite sliced manna. Maybe sliced Achilles or something, whatever they have, souvlaki perhaps. But you're expected actually to, you know, to find your place within this. And no one really knew what to say until uh, Chelsea actually died. And then a guy came along called Origen. And Origen, he's an interesting bloke. He's got some pretty weird ideas, but sometimes he's bang on the money. And this occasion was bang on the money. He said to our dead Celsus or Celsus, whoever told you Christianity was a philosophy? Whoever told you it was an idea? It's not. It's an event. It's about history. It's about something that happened to us. We're talking about Jesus and history and you've got to get that category right. We're not doing philosophy. We're talking about stuff that people saw and touched and handled. 
we didn't dream this up. It wasn't like, you know, in Jerusalem there was a Jewish Agora with a Christian Plato and a Jewish Aristotle all wandering around stroking their chins thinking and they dreamed up the idea of God. That's not what happened. This begins with guys out fishing and some bloke starts walking on the water. You understand if you're a philosopher, all kinds of, you know, switches start flipping and, you know, circuit breakers are going, all that kind of stuff. No, this is actually about history. And the first people who spoke about Jesus all made that claim. We saw this, we touched it, we handled it. We don't care what you think. We saw it. You've got to hear this. Christianity is a claim, a serious claim about events that took place. It's about history. Now, who have you heard, you know, you're at university, I grew up with this stuff. Faith versus reason, who heard that? Kind of, you know, your faith versus reason. Well, pardon me, you might have to cut this out. It's a load of bollocks. <laughs> right? It's just not true. When the disciples are in the boat, let's just kind of pick a, you know, a small example, and Jesus starts walking on the water, there is no faith there on their part. They are gobsmacked and in fact they can't believe it and they think he's a ghost. That's not faith. That's observation. When they talk about Jesus rising from the dead, they're as shocked as anybody. Thomas says, no way will I believe this until I see it. So when people say Christianity is about faith, no, no, they've got it wrong. It is about trusting someone But the guys who wrote the Gospels are talking about we trust the guy that we were with and half the time we didn't believe what we were seeing. There's no more faith involved in Christianity than in Galileo looking through his telescope and seeing craters on the moon. What's Galileo doing? Trusting his senses. That's what the Christian story is based on. Which interestingly is why modern science is the stepchild of Christianity. I shouldn't say the stepchild, but actually the child of Christianity. You only get science in the modern West because of what Christianity brought to the Greek world. I'm going to argue that the modern world does not come from Athens. It comes from Jerusalem, actually. And you might be thinking, I don't believe that. Good. Come to the last talk. But I recently gave a talk on the West Coast, uh, California, and a pastor friend of mine brought along three of his um, gay women friends, two of them were married, and we're introducing this program about discipleship, and they're right around the front coffee table listening, and I went through this, and at the end, I sat down to meet them, and he introduced them to me, they're non-Christians, and they said to me afterwards, we've never heard anything like that, but it's amazing, we believe it, right? it's just astonishing. They said, so what caused that? And I said, Jesus, can you tell us about him? You're asking me to tell you about Jesus. Whoa. <laughs> so off we went and you know, I rattled on a bit and never forget it. You know, I'm, I thought, hang on, you've been talking too much, which I do. I have flappy lips. Right? It just happens. Okay? Put me in front of a fan, I start talking. <laughs> There's a pun in there somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> dreadful, isn't it? 9.30 at night, 9.40, oh my goodness, get it moving here. So anyway, um, I'll never forget it. You know, as I thought I'd been talking too long, I, I kind of was aware of them. These three women leaning across the table, their faces shining with the light of the gospel. And I said, I've been talking too long, I'll never forget. They said, oh, please don't stop, this is amazing. That's the Jesus we're dealing with, right? Not some little idea somewhere. Someone who changed the world forever with serious consequences historically and also for you because I see on your faces the light of that very same gospel. It's a good thing. And so, is it faith? No. They saw and touched and handled this. Did they believe it when they saw it? No, not initially. But they thought about it. They reasoned about it, but not on the basis of science, on the basis of their Jewish history and they come up with this extraordinary claim that somehow in this carpenter from Galilee, the one true God, unlike any other God the ancient world knew, Yahweh, we'll talk about him, had become present in the person of Jesus. Now, you have no idea what a just unbelievably gobsmacking historical jump that is. 
No first century Jew is ever going to come to that kind of conclusion unless forced to. And that's what you get in the New Testament. You're seeing people whose lives have just been turned because they're encountered with Jesus. And he's not just an idea, he's real. So not faith versus reason at all. I really don't like that. Okay, so that's that. Now let's talk about what we've got. We're talking about history. You look at the Gospels and, you know, obviously if you're going to read something, you need to know what genre it is. Who enjoys reading Peanuts? I'm an old guy. Some of you seen Peanuts? There's a few, okay. Um, Is it really true that there's a dog called Stoopy who can shoot down the Red Baron flying on top of his doghouse? No, you recognise that's not what it's saying. It's not saying there's a doghouse that flies or a dog that flies it. That's something called genre, right? It's why you can recognise the difference between poetry and a physics textbook. So no one in the first century is going to be doing Snoopy cartoons. It's not an option in the first century. No one's writing science fiction. People maybe are telling myths, but they're actually quite ancient. No one's inventing new ones, really. So as a historian, you look around and you see what's available in the first century, and the Gospels are actually ancient biographies. That's what they are. So this is our earliest concrete evidence about this person called Jesus. You don't have to believe in him to do what we're doing now. These documents exist. We have manuscripts that go back to about 100 years after Jesus. You've got that kind of stuff, right? And they're probably written, the original Gospels are probably written within 30 or 50 years of Jesus' life. That's actually really useful. First of all, it gives enough space to get some perspective and to think about what's happened. Now, you might know this if you're a historian. Some of the books written about World War II, immediately after World War II, are not that helpful. They're still too caught up in the moment. They don't have enough distance to think about it. At the same time, the Gospels are written still within living memory. And you know what happens when you've got events that happen that are beyond living memory, interesting things begin to happen to them. And anthropologists will tell you that, and there's special titles for them, I won't bother you with the details. But the Gospels happen, if you like, in that sweet spot, within that three or four decades when people have a time to really reflect on what they've experienced, but it's still what they've experienced. Living memory, you can talk to people who were there. That's what we're dealing with. Now, what do we know about ancient biographies? Well, just a couple of things about this. Um, No one writes 500-page books in the first century because scrolls are not that long. And you want stuff that people will read. Who's going to read a 500-page book? Not not the common people. So you might get philosophers who write big, long things, but not the common people. So most of the Gospels, actually all four of them, are based on two sizes of scrolls, a small one and large ones. Mark is a small one. It's about half the size of Matthew, Luke and John. So you get small size or king size or large, what is it, um, small latte or grande or whatever it is, that kind of, those are your two options, okay? Good. So that means, first thing, you can't tell everything. That's why they look different from modern biographies. You can't say everything when you've only got a short amount of space. They have to be selective. Secondly, these are ancient. That's why they don't read like a modern novel. If you're going to read the Gospels and you're looking for some kind of exciting novel written by, I don't know, um, who are some of your favourite novelists? Tom Clancy? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, Jesus is not going to quite read like that. He's not blowing people up, but he is doing some amazing stuff. So maybe. Uh, You're not going to find that. No one does that kind of inner psychology until three or four centuries later. So they don't look like that. What they do talk about, though is they'll give you a brief indication of where their subject comes from. Maybe their lineage, their hometown. Uh, They might talk about their birth. Maybe an anecdote or two from when they were children. But most of their concern is what this person did as a public figure. Their debut, how they came onto the stage, public horizons and people got to know them, they'll talk about that. And then if they're a general or a politician or a statesman, it tends to be more chronological and they'll focus on their great deeds and their virtues or particular speeches they were known for. If the person is a philosopher or a teacher, then it's different. It's not arranged chronologically, it's arranged thematically and they're going to focus primarily on the teaching. And what are they trying to do here? They're trying to do several things. They're trying to preserve the memory of the person. 
They're also trying to win followers and defend a person against detractors. And then there's a special emphasis on how the person dies. Your death and how you die will tell everybody around you what kind of person you really are. The ancients knew that. People can do all kinds of stuff and carry on like pork chops. But the real moment comes when you're facing your death. That's when everything comes due and we really get to see what kind of person you are. The ancients knew that. And their biographies focus particularly on the death of the person who's their primary focus. How did they die? What were they saying as they approached their death? How did they sum up their teaching? Well, it seems pretty obvious to me if that's true, there's all kinds of similarities with the Gospels. Right? So that's what they are. Very clear. These are biographies. And if you think about you know, a statesman and the generals, what do they do? They tell stories of deeds. Well, lots of stories about Jesus' amazing deeds. And his virtue, right? What was his character like? A lot of stuff like that. So you can see that parallel. But also with teachers and philosophers. Lots of teaching about Jesus. Sometimes it's arranged thematically. So it's actually an interesting combination of chronology and thematic arrangement. Now, the thing that's really important to get out of all of this, in writing these biographies, they're making a claim about this story. If people tell you that Jesus is a myth, they're just very poor historians. That just shows, pardon me, not to be too unkind, how ignorant they are. Because the documents we have that talk about Jesus are biographies. You don't have to believe them. Right? Say you don't believe it, that's absolutely fine. But don't say it's a myth. That's just ignorance. They're making a claim about stuff that happened. You can say, I don't believe you, and that's okay. But that's the claim they're making. This is history, according to them. Now, what creates some of the interesting stuff about this biography, interesting issues for people, is there are actually some very significant differences. And those are the things that historians want to explain. Okay, these guys are writing biographies. Why are they different from the other stuff we read? How did that come about? Why are these four biographies, similar in so many respects, different from everything else that was written? Why? How does that come about? Creativity doesn't work as an answer. We're going to argue for some of that a bit later on. How does this all come about? What gives rise to it? Okay? So, what are some of the odd things? Well, of the four Gospels, four fingers, still got them, only two, Matthew and Luke, talk about Jesus' human origins. That's really unusual. All four tie Jesus into the history of Israel and particularly the work of Israel's God. That is really unusual. Where does that come from? What inspires them to do this? So yes, like the great statesmen and the great generals, Jesus performs mighty deeds, but some of these mighty deeds are really bizarre. I mean, they're just weird if we're coming at it from the point of view of kind of a neutral observer. Like, what? Really? Yeah, good. And then his teaching, lots of that, but a very different emphasis in places. So that, for me, is the great question that faces me just as an historian, not as a Christian, just as somebody who's interested in the first century world, wants to know how history works, what gives rise to things, what happens, how do they connect, what event gives rise to the next event. How do you explain stories like this? That's a massive question. And just to kind of let you in on the secret here, I'm utterly convinced these are true because I simply cannot imagine any other way that these stories could come about. They just don't fly, apart from the fact that somebody did this stuff. They are so weird and odd at this point. But we'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, if you think this is me just carrying on, there's a wonderful story about a, a Christian scholar who had a friend. His name was Gunter Zuntz. You all know Gunter, I'm sure. Right? Uh, well, you should, but no, maybe not. Gunther's a, a, a world-famous classicist. German, right? And it's in Germany... Sorry, uh, I do have some German blood so I can make fun of myself, okay? <laughs> and it's in Germany if you do it like this, okay? 
Uh, they showed Gunter the Gospels. He never actually read them. Grew up in a very secular household, right, leading exponent of the classical world, and they said, you know, Gunter, would you please read these Gospels and tell us what you think? And he came back and he said, well, you know, um, there is something clearly very, very important that these people want to talk about. There is tremendous purpose and concentration. Now, he's not saying whether he believes it or not. He's just comparing it to the other stuff that's out there. The stuff that makes these different. And that's our concern. Where does that come from? He says, this is not a history like any other history we've read. He recognises it belongs to that category, but it doesn't look like any history he's read. It's not a biography like any other biography we've read. What you're getting here, he said, are the actions, the sayings and the suffering of a higher being moving through the anxious world of men and spirits. Now, if you know something about the first century world, it is an anxious world. The most common form of religious expression in the ancient world, okay, some of you running and crying, I believe, right? Uh, listening to New Testament foundations, gee, I wonder who that might be, um, might be able to answer this question. Should we embarrass him? No, 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 we're going to be too Christian to do that. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm not very Christian. So, <laughs> um, the most common form of religious expression in the ancient world is occult practice and magic. Why do they do that? because the world is a terrifying place to live. Believe you me, you would not want to live in the first century world. It's a scary, frightening place. And Gunther understands that. But the figure that the Gospel describes, the four Gospels describe, is quite different from anything he's ever encountered. And he's right. Not that he'd be too care not that he would care too much about my, you know, he's a classicist of some standing and I'm just a wacky old Aussie, so there you go. Well, you, you can see there's gonna be some questions. We're gonna have a look at those quickly now, right? Some questions that emerge out of this. Big issues. How do we know they've not been tampered with? Is that what somebody's been doing here, some kind of mucking about with these texts, maybe? We're gonna talk about Jesus' words. Some of them pretty cool. Others are like, What? Did he just say that? Okay. And the same with his mighty deeds. He does some stuff. You go, here you go, Jesus, right? He takes on the rich guys. Yeah, good boy. You know, uh, cleanses the temple and that's kind of great. But, you know, like, you just forgave sins? Like, you lost your marbles? And, and what did you just do with the Passover? You changed the menu. Who the heck do you think you are? You know? That's been great, 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 grandmother's recipe for, you know, and you're changing it? Are you kidding? Well, so, and then we're going to talk finally about the resurrection because that's the zinger. Without that, we should all go home. Right. So these are some of the issues. And a few things about this just quickly. Well, one of the questions is, are the texts reliable? Okay, here's a question. And a free jar of Vegemite, the person who can get it right. You've all heard of Plato. That's not the question. Some of you might have studied him in university. Anyone kind of heard this guy, read some of his stuff? There's a few... It's not the planet at the end of the solar system. It's not Pluto, it's Plato. That? Good. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, very famous Western philosopher. Does anybody know how close our oldest manuscript is to actually when Plato lived? Does anyone know the actual time difference? Have you got this right? Have you listened to those lectures? Uh, Keeps my Vegemite safe. Um, keep going. Keep going. Who said a thousand? Okay, keep going. <laughs> well, okay, okay. Um, we have half a manuscript 1300 years after Plato. That's our earliest. Now, they might have discovered some, but that, until recently that was it. Right? Josephus, very famous Jewish author. But we just, we had very little. We're talking about a thousand years. You know, by the same time, a thousand years after Jesus, 10,000, no, sorry, a thousand years after Jesus, we have over 6,000 manuscripts or thereabouts in Greek. Can you just see what that means? Half a manuscript, and we have nearly 6,000. Right? And you can work on this stuff. There's something called textual criticism, which strikes fear into the heart of every seminary student. That actually is really quite fun for odd people like me, right? 
But you get to work on this stuff and as you do it, you realize that the stuff you read in your English Bible or your Bible in Mandarin or whatever is based on a Greek text, 97% of which we can be pretty much sure is what was original. And the 3% that we're not sure about doesn't actually mean anything. No one in the ancient world who does ancient history has anything like the assurance we have about the reliability of our textual witnesses. You got that? We're talking a different universe. Half a manuscript, thousands. So if you hear people tell you that these texts have been fiddled with and you can't trust them, well, be my guest, blow them a furphy in love. (laughs) No, 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 not at all, okay? And there are a couple of scholars who make a big deal about, oh, well, scribes change this and change that. No, it doesn't really actually change anything. It really doesn't. That's the tampering. Now, what about the sayings? Because we've we've already mentioned some of the ones that are pretty cool. Uh, More difficult for a rich person to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's kind of a nice little fun one. Ever watched a camel go through a needle? Very interesting. Um, Especially for the camel. But some other ones, like it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, it's what comes out of their heart and their mouth. That's brilliant, isn't it? He's caught up in this situation where people have got him because he's either going to support Caesar, in which case the Jews will hate him, or he'll tell the Jews to reject Caesar, in which case the Romans will kill him, and they show a coin with Caesar's face on it. You know, what do we do? Should we pay taxes? And it's brilliant, right? What does he say? Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to what belongs to in whose image are you made? I would love to come up with a one-line zinger like that on the spur of the moment. (laughs) And people recognise this as brilliant stuff. I mean, they, they really do. But then there are the strange ones. And so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, sir, stand up and walk. And they're all going, what? (laughs) You can't say that? Oh, yes, you can. How did you do that? Or the Passover meal. This is my body. This is my blood. Like, can you, you, honestly, can you imagine a first century Jew taking a meal like Passover, sacred in their tradition for, what, 1,300 years, depending how you date it, right? and saying, oh, I'm going to change the menu. Oh, and by the way, it's about me. (laughs) Now, seriously, as a historian, think about that. Could you think of any first century Jew for whom that would even be a mild possibility? No. No. How do you explain this unless someone actually did it? And who the heck did that person think they were? And that's the problem with Jesus. There's so much really cool stuff and there's other stuff that just chucks a wobbly at you. You get that expression, chuck a wobbly? It's a great expression. Chuck a wobbly. You know what chucking is? And it's not the cheese guy. What's chucking? Chuck is to throw and a wobbly, you know, kind of something that kind of gets you a little bit off your balance okay so you know if you come to places like Regent you'll learn wonderful things like this chuck a wobbly there you go brilliant Um, and and of course I mean that's one thing people can handle in one sense what people say it's the stuff that Jesus does that actually creates a lot more tension for folk now I talked about some of the impressive stuff like cleansing the temple you know he's taking on these guys who are corrupt They're thinking they can use the worship of Yahweh to line their own pockets. That never happens in North America, which is great. And, uh, you know, he takes these guys on and we say, well done you, mate. Good job. You've got these wealthy people who kind of prey on the taxes of the widows and leave them poor and homeless and Jesus takes after them with a big stick and you're going, go for it, mate. Good, good thing. But then he does a few other little things, like he, um, he eats with the wrong people. He goes to the house of a guy called Zacchaeus. We'll talk about it a bit later on. People going, hang on a minute. Well, well, you've just gone to eat with Donald Trump. (laughs) 
don't laugh. How would you feel if that's exactly what Jesus did? And if that's an issue for you, tonight's a good night to become a Christian. Because do you, are, you honestly think that we are somehow better than Donald Trump? That there's more about us that God actually finds approving and wonderful and glorious. And of course, naturally, he would choose me over against. Come on. Come on, come on, come on. And then he goes and chooses 12, and you might not think that's much of an issue, but no rabbi in the first century chose followers. You wouldn't do that. The, the students come and approach the rabbi. For a rabbi to choose followers, that's a little kind of... You've got an ego issue there, eh, mate, do you think? And it's not just one or nine or ten or 14. How many is it? 12, you're a Jew. Does 12 ring any bells? 12 tribes of Israel, who the heck do you think you are? Right? You're just, that's kind of offensive, actually. Well, then, you know, to jump right in, ha, pardon the pun, he walks on the water. So the story goes and calms the sea and, uh, you know, and poor little piggies, you know. Have you seen the little piggies in their starch white shirts? Any Beatles fans here, double white album? You haven't heard of the Beatles? Oh, oh, hey, thank you, thank you. Great music. Couldn't listen, as a nice Pentecostal boy. But, um, <laughs> I'll let you into a secret, but I did. I had a few albums hidden in my cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> and mum found them. Oh! <laughs> that one I will not forget. Okay, so... Uh, so what do you do with all of this? Well, the first thing to be said, actually, uh, the world is a very different place these days. You know, the, the kind of scepticism that you might have grown up with, I certainly grew up with at university, all oh, those things don't happen. Uh, that's not quite the case anymore. In fact, just a number of years ago, um, a Cambridge anthropologist, and this is Cambridge, not the other place. Okay? <laughs> Published a collection of essays by a whole series of trained anthropologists, right? These are not noddies, these are trained anthropologists with PhDs and proper research skills and one of those essays reports 40, listen to the term, anomalous events. What do you call a miracle? An anomalous event, right? <laughs> Just kind of <laughs> take the punch out of it right there, like what are you talking about? <laughs> Say it rapidly, you'll become a Pentecostal. Um, <laughs> studies have been done in China. I go to China just about every year to teach in universities, um, which is great, actually. But studies have been done that show that at least over 50% of Christians in China believe in Jesus because they experienced some kind of anomalous event. And so they now worship an anomaly. In fact, I had dinner in Shanghai a couple of years ago with um, two members of a faculty of a major university there and they become Christians because their parents who'd been Marxist scholars at another university, um, their mother was about to die and they were just didn't know what to do and the woman who cleaned house for them, a Christian woman from the house church, she said, would you like me to pray? And the woman prayed and she was healed. And the whole family became Christians. I had dinner with them. Right? Rational, sensible, thoughtful people encountered an anomalous event. And it's not just in China. Uh, a number of years ago, I was uh, in Cambridge. Anyone heard of uh, St. John's College? John's College, anyone been there? Anyone heard of High Table? High Table is really cool, right? Um, especially for people who have ego trips like me. Uh, so you, you go to the special fellows room and you all gown up and it's only for fellows and their friends and then you have little drinks of uh, sherry and little chocolates and things and the master walks around, he finds out what you all study and then he puts you in the seating order so you can have nice conversations. Right? And then you kind of parade into the dining room and amazing dining room, this is stunning architecture and there's the table, all the students, the plebs, all the students are down below and they're all standing at attention while the great ones come in. Boy, it's a serious ego stroke, believe you me. It's amazing, right? 
So you walk in, you all stand there, and the prayers are read in Latin, and then everyone sits down. And, you know, and I drank sparkling water from a solid silver goblet. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Yo, baby, that was absolutely amazing experience, right? But, and, you know, one guy on my left is a, a, an expert in blood clotting, you know, and the, but the guy on my right was the one who invited me. He's a math god. There are three people in the world who understand what he's doing. All right? Uh, and what he works on is uh, he starts with a single particle and then he adds another one and he does all this kind of uh, random and uh, random patterning and then, uh, what's the one I'm after here? Oh, I can't think of the number. Anyway, uh, see, I don't get it either. <laughs> and what he does is he keeps adding little particles and every time another particle is added, that reduces where these things can move. And he's talking about the emergence of order. Right? As just to increase the number of particles in the system, some kind of emergent order comes out of it, right? And he's a Christian. And how is he a Christian? What happened? Well, he's in Paris a number of years ago, and uh, his wife was um, just, she'd been diagnosed with cancer. And they weren't quite sure what to do with that. And uh, anyway, they, they thought they'd go to a little Anglican church. An Anglican church in Paris, that's about as rare as a hen's tooth, right? And so they go along. And, uh, and, you know, in this particular service, there's not many people there, and there's a, a, the, the vicar says, you know, um, Sister Brown, or whatever it is, Brune, how do you say it in French? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> she went to a healing program thing over the weekend. He said it much clearer than I could. And, uh, and she'd like to pray for people, and so this woman said, oh, you know, I think I should go down and get prayed for. So she went down the front, and this is, I'm not trying to mock her, but she's an older woman, grey hair, and, and she's got her sheet of how to pray for people because she hasn't really done this before. She's just learnt. So she's following the sheet. Well, we have to do this, and now we're going to do this, and she prayed, right, and nothing much happened. And, but that night, in the middle of the night, this math god's wife just bolt upright in bed. She said, something's happened. Something's happened. I said, are you okay? And she, she, she says, something's happened. I just, my whole body, just like it's on fire. Something's happened, right? And, oh, he's, he's worried. So the next morning they take her to the hospital. He thinks something serious has happened and they can't find any cancer. It's all gone. Right? Now, I'm not saying God does that every time. This is not magic. It's not like rub, you know, the golden thing, whatever it is, and the genie's going to come out. That's not how this works. This is relationship. But what I'm telling you is, this is a different world, and please forgive me, it's not being very kind, but Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens are dinosaurs. They live in a world that came about in the 18th century. But that shifted. People these days are much more open to anomalous events <laughs> than they were in the past. And I've had some of my own experiences where just the most amazing things have happened right in front of my eyes. And you go, what? Did I just see that? Okay. So let me say just a few things about this guy from the 18th century and then we're almost done. I've got, what, another 15 minutes to go or so? Is that about it? So something like that? Good. So um, you'll notice this looks rather ghostly. It's meant to be. This is David Hume, 18th century Scottish philosopher. I think great-great-grandfather of Ian, actually. No. Well, Hume is the, fact, the guy who's mostly known for apparently constructing the knockdown argument against what people call miracles. Right? He had two major objections. He said, miracles actually are violations of nature. First thing he said. And the second thing is, and they're contrary to common experience. Those are two big arguments. Well, let me just say a couple of brief things about this. First of all, please understand the Gospels never speak of miracles. And you shouldn't either. They're called mighty deeds or a sign, but they're not miracles because the language miracle implies a breach of natural law. Now, any scientists here among us? Anyone? Okay. You've probably used a reducing agent with a chemical and seen something oxidised and all of that. When was the last time you saw a natural law in a test tube? Laws of nature don't actually exist. Not like this lectern exists, not like you exist. You can't see them. They're human constructs. It doesn't mean they're not real, or at least in terms of reflecting something real. It doesn't mean they're not reliable. I'm an aeronautical engineer. I trusted my life to those laws today when I flew down from Vancouver. 
But all what, what we call laws of nature are actually just patterns of regularity. That's all they are. They're a human construct. Right? Now, Augustine, very famous church theologian, when confronted on this issue, what, 1,600 years ago, said, you don't know that laws of nature are being broken, and we don't. Imagine you lived in Athens at the time of Pluto. Right? And you saw a Boeing 747 travel across the sky. You probably would think that was against nature. But actually, it's just because we don't know enough about the way the world actually operates. Right? We don't know that at any point Jesus is somehow breaking laws of nature. He just might actually have the authority and the know-how to work with this stuff at a level that most of us have no comprehension of. Right? We don't know that. The Bible actually calls them mighty deeds and that's the point. It's emphasizing Jesus' agency. Right? So I would just encourage you, if someone starts talking about miracles, I'd pull them up on that and say, actually, that's not what the Bible calls them. So Hume had a whole string of requirements. People have to be intelligent, there has to be doctors to test, da-da-da-da-da, you know, and then, only then will we accept these kinds of reports. Well, you realise what a smoke and mirror game this was when actually that situation was fulfilled in Paris during Hume's lifetime. I believe it was. He had all the evidence he needed and then he finally said, well, I don't believe it anyway because it's against nature. Now, imagine if that was your attitude in science. Someone comes up with a new theory and says, I don't believe it. Well, actually, it's there. Look, right? That's how science goes forward, right? You think there's ether out there and you discover that there isn't. That's what being a good scientist is about. It's actually looking at the stuff in front of you, thinking about it carefully, and then drawing a conclusion, which, by the way, you get from the Gospels. We saw, we touched, we handled. Contrary to common experience. Well, yeah, whose experience, Mr. Hume? Well, white Males, enlightenment, cynics like me. That's rather self-selecting, don't you think? You want people to test beer, what do you do? Invite all the people who can't stand the stuff and they'll tell you, there's nothing, no good beers anywhere. Well, yeah, right, what do you expect? Right. But actually, uh, there are many, many people who can testify to these things. You know, here's a bit that's interesting. Miracle stories in the ancient world. And I think I need to, no, I'll just, it's in your notes. We'll go to the next one in a minute. Uh, I'm trying to write a book on this and if you talk to Katie, you'll know that me writing books, if I finish one, it'll be like, you know, the eschaton will come and pigs will fly, make sure you buy a cast iron umbrella. <laughs> but I've been really interested in the mighty deeds Jesus does. So what I've done is I've collected all this stuff from 800 BC and looked at the kinds of miracle stories that they tell about these people, you know, wonder stories. And what's intriguing is this. Most of them come from before 800 BC, around about that period, right? Around the time of Homer in the ancient world. And then they start to tail off. 400 BC around there is when the Greeks begin to do philosophy, natural philosophy. doesn't involve any notion of the gods. And around about that point, you begin to find these myths, legends of, of wonder stories begin to drop off and from 200 BC, there's really none told at all. So what you've got, you hear people tell, well, in the ancient world, people believed all this kind of stuff. No, they didn't. Do your history, you'll discover that it's declining rapidly. Oh, they'll tell the old stories, then they kind of reinterpret them. But it's not part of their natural experience. That's not the world they live in, most of them. You've got that and then suddenly out of the blue comes Jesus with 35 unique stories. Unique to him in this sense of um, what's going on in the first century. Now what's intriguing about this is not just the stories. If you actually combine them and see what pattern's going on behind them and there is a pattern, it's absolutely mind-blowing. And you have to ask yourself as a historian, where did this come from? And the kind of reasoning I'll go through is the reasoning we use when we talk about the resurrection right now. Now, remember, we're doing history. We're not doing philosophy. We're talking about events. Right? So, 
couple of things to notice about this. No one in the Greco-Roman world wants their body back. Their body is a tomb. It's a problem. They want to set their soul free so as this pure light thing, material thing, it wings its way to heaven. Have you heard some Christians talk like that? They're talking like that not because they're Christians but because they're pagan Greeks. That's a pagan Greek idea. Sorry about that. But you haven't heard it before, now's a good time to hear it. That's not what Christians are on about. For Christians, the body matters to God. It's his temple. It's what enables us to be his image. It's the Jewish people who speak of a resurrection because for them, the body is an incredible gift. So this is really only a Jewish story. But when Jews speak of resurrection, they don't mean just one person coming out. Some of you people will know this. You might have read Tom Wright's The Son of God. He talks about resurrection, Son of God. He talks about this. Have you ever wondered why none of the disciples went outside the room to see if the tomb was empty? The women don't go to check if the tomb's empty. They go to take care of the body. Why don't they go to check? Because they don't need to. Because they know there's no such thing as a single resurrection. Now, Lazarus, that's a raising of the dead. That's not a genuine resurrection. Because for them, a genuine resurrection is passing through death and coming out the side transformed. And that's going to happen to all the righteous. Now, the Jews differ on whether it's actually a resurrection or not. The Sadducees don't believe that, but the Pharisees and others do. But that would be accompanied by the destruction of Rome, a Jewish Messiah in Jerusalem, all the exiles brought home, and in Jesus' day, most Jewish people lived outside their homeland, and the transformation of creation. They don't need to go out, they just look out the window. They know this hasn't happened. And then within a couple of days they're saying, stagger me, it has. Now, how do you get from there to there in 48 hours? What happened? I mean, no Jewish person is going to imagine for a second that a single person is going to be resurrected and nothing else happened around them. It's just not part of their imaginative world. Not a possibility. It's not even something they'd conjecture. What changed their view? I think the answer is they're in their room and he appears among them and they go, holy smelly stuff. (laughs) Robin, Batman, something. Honestly, as a historian, I'm not saying this is a person of faith, as a historian, I think that's the only way to explain this. This is such an odd story. No one's going to imagine this. All right, so... um, little line under here before you look at that slide. In fact, I'll take it back so you don't look at that slide. Notice the italics. You've got to put these things in a historical context. Why invent stories that no one is expecting to happen? No one expects the Messiah to walk on water. No one. Why would you invent it? No one expects the Messiah to cast out demons. No one. That's not what the Messiah does. No one expects that. The Messiah doesn't heal people. Why would you invent stories about someone you believe to be the Messiah healing people when it's not an expectation? You see, that's the trick. If this was stuff people were expecting and we know what they were expecting, someone to open the Jordan, where did they get that idea from? They'd read Joshua. Someone to do signs and wonders in the desert. Yep, we know where they got that from too. Someone to cause the walls of Jerusalem to fall down. You know where they got that from as well, right? But not the stuff you find with Jesus. That's why when people look at Jesus, they never make the connection that he's the Messiah because they're not expecting it. Now, that to me is the strongest argument that this stuff must have happened because there's just no way to explain it historically. Okay, coming to our end now. Testimony and memory. Well, history and science are similar and different. They're similar in that they're both concerned with observation. And they both seek to explain, but they're very different exercises. Some of you who know, some, anyone studying history here a little bit, maybe? No? Over here, right. Well, you're probably aware of someone called Benedetto Croce, maybe? Or um, how about Collingwood? Maybe? No? Okay. Well, 
Uh, th there's a big debate going on in the 19th century. Science has proved so wonderful. Let's do history like science. And it just fell completely on its butt. It didn't work. Right? And the reason is history and science are two different things. In science, you're actually looking through something to try and find a universal law underneath it. Right? You're looking for the general, for the universal. You're trying to abstract an equation out of this thing. That's not history. Karl Marx tried that and it didn't work. Just because I know about the French Revolution doesn't mean I know diddly squat about the Russian one. With history, you have to look at every... You don't look through the event, you look at it and you treat it uniquely for what it is. So you have to pay attention, you have to think about it, but you're doing it in different kinds of ways. And history in particular has to do with testimony. Now you hear people say, just the facts, just the facts. Remember that kind of show you see on television when I was younger? You know, the guy, he's kind of, he was a detective. Ma'am, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, right? Well, no, it's never just the facts. We know that now. But the, f the fact of the matter is da -da -da -da, that most of what you think you know, you got secondhand from somebody. Right? Testimony, without testimony, most of us would have just a fraction of the knowledge we have. It's absolutely critical. And that's what the Gospels are on about. They're on about testimony. Because that's how you do history. We saw this. We were there. This is what happened. That's what law courts do all the time. Law courts are based on testimony bit of scientific evidence, but it's who saw what and when and how did that work, right? That's what it's really on about. And the New Testament tells you they are really concerned that you get the right eyewitnesses, not because they're stacking the deck. Let me put it this way. You got into trouble for doing something. Who would you like to talk about who you are and what you were doing and what you meant to do? Someone who knows you or someone who doesn't? And the New Testament's really keen on that. When Judas, you know, tops himself, they have to find a replacement, so they get back to their 12. What do they say? It has to be someone who was with us from the very beginning, from the baptism until the ascension. And then you realise it wasn't just the 12. He had a bunch of other people with him from the very beginning. And it has to be those people who then become the guarantors of the tradition, eyewitnesses. And they've got to be people who knew him. Now, what about the issue of memory? Memory does funny things. We have to rush through this. People are aware of it. But on the other hand, memory can do amazing things. The rabbis had rabbinical schools to train people to remember, right, especially the important stuff. A lot of people have to just remember that. Why does Jesus use striking phrases? Because he wants you to remember. Go through the Gospels and look at all those little kind of punchlines. It's not what goes into a person, but what comes out that defiles. Anyone can remember that. He's a really good teacher. Right? He knows how to just give you the punchy sound bite so you've got it. He's really good at doing that. He can talk at length. I already have. Right? But he knows how to do the punchline thing when he needs to. And his actions seem designed to stick in people's memories. So I really don't have too much trouble in trusting the ability of these people to remember. It's in living memory. There are people around them communities who were there who can remember this stuff so I think they're trustworthy at that point well that our last point now has to do with the sources I don't want to spend too much time on this because it requires a little more expertise but you know we talk about biographies you know, they're not just a straightforward account they've been arranged either chrono chronologically with certain emphases or thematically or something like that What's really interesting, when you look at the Gospels in your notes, the synoptics kind of reflect this exodus pattern. Most of Jesus' mighty deeds happen at the front end, then there's a journey, then they arrive in Jerusalem. Sounds just like what happened in Egypt, right? Mighty deeds, journey, Jerusalem. Now, where did that idea come from? Was it Mark? Because he wrote the first Gospel, I believe. Did he dream this up? Well, if Mark dreamt this up, why don't we hear more about him? Because there's some real genius scholars in my field recognise that. Mark is amazingly put together. Was it Mark who did that? Well, if it was, he's astonishing. Why don't we hear more about him? And then you've got the problem. If Mark is relating what Peter said, and I think there's a really good case to be made for that, well, surely Peter must have thought about all this, all this stuff fitted together. Right? So did Peter come up with this? 
Well, if you're asking about whether Mark or Peter could think about it, who's the one other person who we might want to ask about? What about Jesus himself? And out of those three people, who's the bright bunny? (laughs) You think Jesus is wandering around for three years thinking, oh, look, I just healed that person. I wonder what that means. Oh, my goodness. The kingdom of God has come near. I'm not sure what it means, but it's come near. I know I'm being a bit jokey here, but it's late and you've done really well. Um, No, I think the structure that you get in the Gospels comes from Jesus himself. So, my point tonight has been this. When you read those four stories, you are not reading cunningly devised fables. You are reading eyewitness accounts of people who were with him chosen by him to be with him for three years. And you're getting, after three decades or so, careful reflection. I'm utterly convinced, folks, that what you read in the Gospels is actually what happened. It happened. Now, I know you all believe that, but actually you don't. You know, there's a difference between saying, I believed it, and I believe this. I'm convinced this stuff's true. And because it's true, everything, everything has changed. And we'll never be the same again.